From the Chipstone Foundation, you're listening to Cellar Door, a podcast about objects. I'm Pierce Gelly. This episode is called Pockets. Consider the desert island story, the castaway scenario. There's a shipwreck. A man washes ashore. He's so glad to be alive, but then he realizes he's doomed. He has no food, no clothes, no tools. It's a literary problem as old as the expulsion from paradise. How can we talk about our naked dependence on stuff? Hannah Carlson, a historian teaching material culture at the Rhode Island School of Design, told me about this funny literary quarrel that centers on the pockets of two shipwrecked men. First, there's Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, who washes ashore with only a pocket knife, some tobacco, and a pipe. He looks around and says, I'm alone, I have nothing. And he builds a farm and more using the barest minimum of equipment. So we remember Robinson Crusoe for his almost MacGyver-like ability to use what he has and remake the world. And then there's Lemuel Gulliver from Jonathan Swift's novel Gulliver's Travels. The hapless Gulliver is also shipwrecked. But when he's swimming ashore, he carries practically a boatload of stuff on his person and doesn't even think to jettison any of it to save himself. He has a large sword, a set of pistols, a snuff box, a diary, a comb, a razor, a set of eating utensils, a watch, a handkerchief, a pouch of gunpowder, silver and copper, several one, pieces of a pair gold, of spectacles, a pocket perspective. The list becomes absurd. It's civilization in a nutshell civilization in a pocket. Swift is trying to satirize this idea that we could be prepared for any eventuality, that alone, outside of social bonds, we could somehow have everything we need to make it. Pockets let us forget humans' essential nakedness, Swift seems to observe. Think of it this way. Empty your pockets. What do you have with you? A wallet, a phone, a pen, a sharpie, some lip balm, a notebook, and about 80 cents in change. The prospect of shipwreck may be terrifying, but try walking out your door with nothing in your pockets. What could we do without the stuff we carry? I, for one, would be helpless. With empty pockets, I couldn't do my job, but that's just the beginning. I imagine myself strolling the streets of New Haven, unable to get into my apartment, unable to buy food, unable to phone for help, and perhaps most painful for me personally, unable to compulsively take notes, as is my habit. Without pockets, I couldn't exercise my will on the world. So if the self I occupy, the person who can get around in the world, depends upon the contents of my pockets, what are pockets? Are they somehow part of myself? The pocket began in the early 16th century, but these pockets were not the envelope shape we recognize. People would just cut holes in their pantaloons and sew in bags of irregular size. A pair of pants might have two pockets or ten. And when the pocket first came around, it frightened people. Before pockets, men wore daggers and pistols on their belts. Everyone could see them. Once you have pockets, you're not carrying the much more gentlemanly, visible weapon. If you have a pocket pistol, you are thought to be moving in secret with bad intentions. France actually banned the pocket in the 1550s for this reason. 
Of course, pockets eventually became legal and widely popular, but this problem from the 1550s is essentially the contemporary problem of concealed carry. If we don't know what's in someone's pockets, we can't measure their capabilities, and it doesn't take much imagination to feel quite unsafe oneself in a world where outside one's door, who knows how many pistols are bumping along the sidewalk in their owner's pockets. It's not for nothing, Hannah told me, that the British psychoanalyst John Carl Flugel fixed on pockets as a symbol of society's ills when writing his 1930 book, The Psychology of Clothes. He apparently was walking down the street. Wanted to find something in his pockets. He couldn't find it. And this made him reflect and count the number of pockets on his person. And he came up with something like 22 pockets. And he thought, essentially, my God, I'm a walking pocket. It's absurd how much I'm carrying. But he noted that pockets are necessary, that we need them. Our society requires us to bear these personal chests of drawers on our bodies, to carry our keys, wallets, pocket watches, diaries, combs, maybe even weapons. So, Flugel suggested, let's change the terms of society. Turns out he's actually advocating for the utter eradication of clothes. He's one of the utopian nudists of the 1920s. Who believes we will be better off if we don't have clothes to distinguish either sex or class, and that clothing has been, for humanity, something that holds us back. But Flugel says you know, we're still going to need some kind of harness in which we're going to carry the things that we require in civilized life. At least until we've totally fixed civilization. Just seven years earlier, in 1923, H.G. Wells had published Men Like Gods, a work of utopian science fiction in which the environment is so well designed that everyone's nude and no one needs a pocket. He imagines this world where people are zipping around in their airplanes, living this lovely life. Nobody has to carry money anymore. It's a socialist utopia. Society is so well engineered, so safe, that nudity isn't nakedness. So that's the sort of totalitarian vision of when nudism can work. Toni Morrison also draws a connection between unencumbrance and an ideal society, though she doesn't go quite so far as nudity. Milkman, the protagonist of Song of Solomon, arrives in the all-black community of Shalimar, Virginia. And he notices the women's hands were empty. No pocketbook, no change purse, no wallet, no keys, no small paper bag, no comb, no handkerchief. They carried nothing. Milkman had never in his life seen a woman on the street without a purse slung over her shoulder, pressed under her arm, or dangling from her clenched fingers. These women walked as if they were going somewhere, but they carried nothing in their hands. In Morrison's utopia, it's the women in particular who walk unencumbered. It's a pointed observation about the mobility denied to women precisely because gendered female clothing often lacks pockets. There's the freedom to move without pockets, and then there's the freedom to move with pockets, without a heavy purse. Pockets can be great. Just ask the writer Nicholson Baker. I'm a pocket-loving guy. At any moment, I got a couple pens, just one. Why would you have just one pen? For a long time, I tried to do everything with pockets. He'd stuff his shirt pockets with notes he took during the day. And, and then at the bottom, you'll find it completely squashed and creased is some ancient receipt on crinkly paper for a transaction you've completely forgotten. So there's all this history going on that you're walking around with, and yet it seems as if you're just striding unencumbered through the day. 
And he says he's always found pockets an important way of thinking about the world, precisely because they represent the border between the world and the mind. That's what I think I like about the pocket metaphor, the pocketing of things, the prestidigitational trickery of being able to move things from the world of public visibility into a private place. And it sort of feels to me like writing. I guess what I like about writing is that paragraphs take your most personal observations or, or embarrassments sometimes, or fantasies, whatever they are, and, and you fill them up. And, and it feels as if you're putting them away or you're stowing them, uh, you're, you're, you're pocketing them. But, but then because of the weird and wonderful act of publishing, you're, you're making public what you have hidden. I thought of asking him about his pockets because his 1986 novel, The Mezzanine, is very much about what we carry with us, both physically and not. This novel tells the story of the narrator's escalator journey from the lobby to the mezzanine of his office building, back to work after lunch. But in Nick's hands, this journey of maybe a minute expands into chapter after chapter, meandering through time and space, rendering the diverse contents of the mind. In one passage that I love, this narrator imagines the day's end when he'll finally undress and empty his bulging pockets. Here's Nick reading that scene. And we begin to pull handfuls of change and stubs of velvet's packs out of our pockets, forced to lean forward slightly in order to cup all the unwanted coinage we've collected from the world that day because we have lazily used whole bills for every transaction, dropping the warm change and keys and cash machine receipts and litter into a saucer that's already overflowing with change, and then assuming another special contrapposto pose to pull out the wallet, whose moist bulk was a subliminal bother all day, although we weren't able to pinpoint our discomfort until now, as we dropped the slightly sticky lump of leather and plastic on top of the sliding mound of change and feel one whole cheek of our ass instantly cooled down, relieved of 10 hours of this remorid propinquity. Nick told me this scene is about as autobiographical as can be. He often finds his own burrow covered with formerly pocketed items. This horrendous shrine of stuff that poured out of me. And the receipts form this kind of strange crinkly pile. And then there are the shirt pocket notes that for me. Those form a huge pile eventually. And all the other just stuff. Business cards people give me. And I just hate the look of it, but it's, it's me. One day, looking at the stuff of which he'd unburdened himself, he thought, wouldn't it be interesting to look at this cluttered bureau as another sort of pocket? A meta pocket, maybe. The kind of ultra pocket or sort of super pocket of my life. So on a few occasions, he swept everything on the bureau into a white box. And they're not that many. I mean, it just it's a stack, maybe five little boxes from Staples taped up with um, the date that I packed it up written outside. And he's placed all these boxes in his storage unit alongside his manuscripts and research books. And so it's just like um, everything is going to an even bigger er pocket that's rented somewhere that's still on me. You know, I, it's still part of me in a way. Wow. So what do you think you will do with the boxes, if anything? Nothing. I, I don't think anything. I mean, I, I suppose, <laughs> I don't know. It's an archive that has no use to me or to anyone else. Probably I'll just, at some point, when I'm feeling strong, I'll just, you know, I'll just 
toss them out, but not until I've looked at some of those shirt pocket notes one more time. The thing that first came to my mind when you emailed me was what Gollum said. What has he got in his pocketses? As a kid, Nick was fascinated by this scene from The Hobbit. The exchange of riddles between Gollum and the hero, Bilbo Baggins, who all the while is holding Gollum's lost magic ring in his pocket. Fingering this secret powerful ring. That Gollum can sense, but not see. What has he got in his pocketses? That's the curious thing. What have you got in your pockets, you know? <laughs> What secrets do you have? What little magic rings are you hiding? Or embarrassments, whatever they are, records of your life. What, what's on your cash machine receipt? That's the appeal and the kind of romance of pockets. Yeah, yeah. It's a direct line there in a way that very few material things in the world, except maybe kind of novels, actually do. Like you, you can't know what's going on inside someone's head, but you can look in their pockets. Yeah. Yes. What pockets allow you to do is that you get to arrange the internal architecture of your mental bodily room. If I were a nudist, I'd need some kind of uh, Boromir's hunting horn shaped thing. I would need some sort of pseudo pocket that would hang casually to one side that would hold, I don't know what, sunscreen, a couple quarters. What would we be without our pockets? Would pocketlessness make us happier? less happy? Could it make us more moral? I contacted the people who ought to know best, the nudists. Specifically, I reached out to the American Nudist Research Library at the Cypress Cove Nudist Resort. I'm curious a little bit about what may seem to you like the dull stuff. Like, if you're in a, in a nudist situation, what do you do with your wallet and keys and phone? I lock my wallet in my car unless I need to go to the gift shop or the restaurant here. We have a place called Cheeks. But as it turns out, not even nudists are totally unencumbered or totally naked. If you're here at the pool or playing volleyball or something, you might have your shoes on and socks at least. If you're at the pool, you're going to have a towel. You almost never see anyone walking around the Cypress Cove, for example, here, completely nude. If they at least have shoes or if they have, or they have a towel slung over their shoulder, women will have a bag of some kind. You never actually see somebody completely nude without something at hand. Wow. So you can never really escape the need to have stuff. You're right. I mean, I, I see somebody walking around out here completely nude, not without anything. You, you kind of notice, like, oh, I don't have anything. Ed handed the phone to Becky, a former school teacher. My husband has what he calls a portable pocket. Uh, he bought it at a naturist venue somewhere. Somebody's handmade it. It's basically like a small, um, over-the-shoulder bag, just kind of big enough for keys and a wallet. So he often walks around beaches and places like that with his, what he calls his portable pocket. Becky said the best simulation of a nudist society is a nude cruise, where everyone on board is nude except the crew. On the nude cruise, many people keep their room key and maybe their credit card or a little cash or a cell phone in a lanyard that they wear over their, their neck. And they tend to give them out on the cruise for free. It's usually see-through, but I see other people might have been more creative. They might make their own, but it's just a small item. Not too heavy, but it might be big enough for your small cell phone, your, your room key, and uh, a credit card or a little cash. And most people keep that on their neck all day. Uh, some of the ones I've received are waterproof. So you swim with it, you know? They never take it off. Do you ever see anyone who has who has nothing? Absolutely. Yes, you do. Um, there are many what I would call the diehard nudists. They don't care how cold it is. I would call my husband a diehard nudist. If he can be nude at any time, he totally is going to be. But somebody has to carry the room key. 
it's kind of like if you're with a pair, it's a lot simpler to have nothing. So sometimes um, I'm carrying the stuff. Becky herself becomes the pocket in this situation. I'll tell you one thing I have found. In nude resorts, on nude beaches, and on nude cruises, I don't worry about theft. Maybe I should, but I don't. It seems like there's some kind of unwritten rule that people are honest. I've been known to leave my my Kindle, my iPhone 6, my wallet, my car keys in a bag. It's not out visible, but in a bag, on a chair, and I'm an hour in the pool of the hot tub. I'm not watching that bag. I've never had anything stolen. So people tend to do leave things around, but they feel... Why, why do you why do you think that is? I just think that in general, naturists are uh, an open and honest group of people. Because how are you hiding anything? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't feel that way, but I do. And I've never had anything stolen. Nobody has nobody has led me to feel any other kind of way yet. But I think if you ask nudists, they will say that being nude and having conversations with people opens you up to a level of familiarity and comfort that you're not going to find when you see people with clothes because you don't know what they got in their pockets. You don't know what they may be hiding. People can hide behind their clothes. And when you're naked and you're talking to strangers, you got nothing to hide. So are nudists truly more moral than the rest of us? I don't know. But even as pockets conceal... They reveal. And there are two powerful examples of this. I've been thinking a lot about them. At the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. The objects that visitors most request to see are the contents of Lincoln's pockets when he was assassinated at the Ford Theater. He had a linen pocket handkerchief, a pocket knife, a watch fob, although no watch, a recently worthless $5 Confederate bill, and a number of newspaper articles, many of which included favorable reviews of his presidential candidacy. It just happens that his life, you know, ended right there with a, a flash. And so caught in the flashbulb of time are, are the things that he chose to have closest to his body. They suggest something really human about where he thought his attention might go. Maybe he thought he was going to be bored at the theater and wanted to read his reviews. That strange shiver that you get because we know what was in his pockets is because of that a sudden collision of the public and private spheres. There's a little release of energy there. I think it reveals this belief that the objects we carry somehow speak a kind of truth. A truth about the person that isn't indicated in the record. We have Lincoln's speeches, but we want access to him, some kind of unmediated access to the real Lincoln. The stuff that we carry is this funny, disorderly mess. Important stuff and junk all together. It's a temporary collection. We think about our houses, about libraries and museums. These are all collections that indicate either something about the person or about what the culture values. And then there's the little collections or not so little collections that we carry with us, things that are generally unconsequential until suddenly they aren't. I think of Lincoln and then I think of the cigarette lighter, the earphones, the can of juice, the cash, and the bag of Skittles all in Trayvon Martin's pockets on the night he was killed. According to a representative of the Trayvon Martin Foundation, those objects have now made their way through the justice system back to Martin's family. 
The family has no plans, positively or negatively, to display them. It's worth considering who maintains the right to conceal whatever they choose to travel safely in public spaces. We're far from the sort of society in which we all move with equivalent unencumbrance, pocketless or no. Here's hoping someday we get there. This show was written and produced by me, Pierce Gelly. I had editorial help from Sarah Ann Carter, Natalie Wright, and Jonathan Brown. Thanks to Max Suchting and to So Percussion and Matmos for letting me score this episode with their music. You can learn more about all this music and read a transcript of the show at cellardoor.audio. That website and our logo were designed by Wynn Patterson. Our theme music is by Daniel Nass. Cellar Door is a project of the Chipstone Foundation, an organization devoted to the study of material culture and decorative arts. You can visit our galleries at the Milwaukee Art Museum, and you can learn more about us at chipstone.org.